Today we're reading from Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. It's Colossians chapter 1. It's page 1183 in the church Bibles, if you're reading one of those. So starting from verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. For your reading, Lydia, at the end of this Bible talk, we're going to sing these words, Christ is enough for me. Christ is enough for me. Now, I admit it's, it's unusual to start a, a talk by announcing the song that's going to come at the end, and don't worry, you haven't snoozed off and missed the whole uh, talk. This really is the beginning of it. Christ is enough for me. You'll sing it, but do you believe it? Is it actually true for you? Or put another way, you you may be able to sing it at 11.30 on Sunday morning and feel it and mean it. But what about at 11.30 on Monday morning? Will it be true then? Christ is enough for me. Really? Is he? If you're trusting in Jesus, down the line, what would stop you trusting in him? My suspicion is that for most of us here, it won't be having about having some great doubts about whether the Christian faith is true or not. For a few of us, that is the case. Indeed, there there are a handful here who have had or are having those sort of doubts. And I want to say well done for being here, for not giving up. Hang on in there. But I suspect for the majority of us, it won't be doubts about whether the Christian faith is true. It'll be that other things will seem more appealing. It'll be feeling that Christ isn't enough for me. It's not that I'll give up on Christ necessarily, but I'll need more. So Christ plus a great family life. Christ plus a really successful career. Christ plus ticking off the things in my bucket list, the things I want to do before I die. So we might still sing Christ is enough for me but increasingly will live as though he isn't. Can you recognize the danger? 
Or maybe you can do more than recognise the danger. That's you right now. You're feeling that Christ isn't enough. That was the issue for the Christians in Colossae to whom this letter of Colossians was originally written. Their danger was of thinking that Christ wasn't enough for them. We'll see that as, as we go on through this letter of Colossians. It was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians in Colossae, that's, that's in Asia Minor. We started looking at this letter last week, and God willing, we'll be working our way through it on Sundays and in our growth groups midweek between now and early December. The things that caused the Colossian Christians to wonder whether Christ was enough, they may be slightly different from the things that cause us to think it. But the solution is the same. We need to see how wonderful Christ is. Let me pray for us. Loving Lord, we pray that as you speak to us through your word this morning, our hearts would be set on fire with love for the Lord Jesus as we see how wonderful he is. Amen. Got three sections this morning. Here's the first. Christ is enough because he's supreme over creation. Because he is supreme over creation. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Before we dive in, can I just say something about New Testament letters? Some of us find them really hard. They're dense, they're theological, they're packed with difficult words. And you may be someone who prefers a story where you can follow what's happening. And let's just be honest, as Lydia read the passage, some of us will inwardly have been going, whoa, too much for me to take in here. And look, this is, this is one of the densest passages in the whole New Testament. Can I encourage you, if that is you, if, if you just struggle with, with, with the letters, can I just encourage you to stick with it through this series? Some of us love the story elements. I love the story parts of the Bible. They bring so much color. But the letters bring depth. We'll understand the truths about the Lord Jesus and what he's done for us more deeply through the letters of the New Testament than anywhere else as they explain it to us in a really deep way. So let's dig into the passage. Verse 15 is talking about the Lord Jesus. Uh, he's called in verse 13, the beloved son of the father. He, if I put it like this, he's the he of verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. The Sistine Chapel in Rome it is, is probably most famous for its amazing ceiling. Uh, millions come to Rome each year, and the ceiling uh, of the Sistine Chapel is top of the list of things to see. It was painted, I'm sure you know this, but I, just in case, it was painted in the 16th century by Michelangelo. That's the artist Michelangelo, not the mutant nin teenage ninja turtle, just for clarity's sake. Now, if you ever get the chance to see that ceiling, the chances are, rather than spending long periods of time looking up at the ceiling like this and craning your neck or, or losing your dignity completely and lying on the floor and just gazing at it, the chances are you will look at an image of that ceiling. 
In the Sistine Chapel, there are, I haven't, I haven't been, uh, there are apparently loads of mirrors at sort of ground level which reflect the ceiling. So rather than have to do this, you can look down and see the amazing ceiling in the mirrors and move around and, and see different parts of it. You're seeing an image. Now when, when Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, it's not quite the same. In the Sistine Chapel, it, it's difficult to see the actual ceiling, but it is possible. But Paul is saying that it is impossible to see God. He is the invisible God. You can't see him. You look up, upwards, you don't see God. But Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That is, Jesus is the exact representation of God. And therefore, to look at Jesus is to look at God. Have you been ever asked this question? Have you ever seen God? People love to ask Christians that question, thinking they'll catch us out as they do so. Have you ever seen God? No, you haven't. But if you'd lived in the right place at the right time, you would have done. If you or I had lived in Jerusalem or the area around Nazareth in the first part of the first century, we would have seen God because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Therefore, to see Jesus is to see God. Over the summer, we looked at the I am sayings of Jesus in John's gospel. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, one of his disciples, Philip, said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. All this stuff, what you're saying about yourself, Jesus, is all very nice, but just show us the Father. And can you remember how Jesus answered him? Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That's what Paul is claiming for Jesus here. That Jesus is God in human form. That to see Jesus is to see God. Now, how does that help us? Because after all, we don't see Jesus. We don't live in first century Nazareth or Jerusalem. We live in 21st century Nottingham. But as we encounter Jesus, we are encountering God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. I've had someone say to me, maybe you have as well, I don't much like the God of the Bible, but I really like Jesus. Maybe that's something we can relate to. I don't much like the God of the Bible, but I really like Jesus. But, But that must be wrong. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Everything God is, Jesus is. Everything Jesus is, God is. Why do people like Jesus? What draws people to him? His compassion, his love, his kindness, his generosity, his wisdom, his integrity. We could go on. But Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus' compassion is God's compassion. His love is God's love. His kindness is God's kindness. And so on. So as we encounter Jesus, we are encountering the invisible God. And Jesus is wonderful and incredible.
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Now, quick church history lesson. Uh, A man called Arius, or Arius, who was around, I'm not sure that's his actual photo, but never mind, who was around in the 3rd and 4th centuries, said Jesus wasn't fully God, and that God the Father alone was God. And he appealed to various parts of the Bible, including Colossians 1, verse 15. Look, Arius said, Jesus is the firstborn of creation. Now, if he's the firstborn, there must have been a time when he wasn't. If you're born, there's a time before you were born. If he's the firstborn of creation, it must mean that rather than being eternal as God is, he was the first thing to be created. Now, we can see where he's coming from, right? Because it kind of seems to be what this passage is saying. And can we see the problem if that is what it's saying? Now, One of the golden rules in handling tricky verses in the Bible is that God doesn't contradict himself and his words. God doesn't say something in one part of the Bible and then contradict it in another. If we find two things that seem to contradict themselves, then we must have misunderstood one of them or both of them. Elsewhere in the Bible, God is very clear that Jesus was there at the very beginning and is fully God in every way. The beginning of John's gospel, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and the word there is Jesus Christ. So whatever Colossians 1 verse 15 means in calling Jesus the firstborn of all creation, it cannot mean that Jesus was created because John 1 clearly says that he was there at the beginning. And Aries must be wrong in saying that Jesus is not God because John 1 clearly says that he was God. So what might be meant when it says that Jesus was the firstborn of creation? Is the word firstborn used anywhere else in scripture which might help us to understand what is meant here? It is indeed. Psalm 89, who was written by Ethan the Ezraite, whoever he is, Let me read from verse 19. Ethan is addressing God and he says, Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I've granted help to one who is mighty. I've exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant and with my holy oil I have anointed one. I have anointed him. By David here he means David who was king of Israel in the 10th century BC. And the Lord says of the descendant of David, this is the key bit, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, firstborn here cannot mean the first to be born, any more than it can mean that in the book of Exodus, where God describes Israel as his firstborn son. It is instead a title indicating supremacy. Firstborn of creation means supreme over creation. And why? Why is the Lord Jesus supreme over creation? Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We thought at the beginning of our tendency to think that Christ isn't enough. 
that we need him and other things. But can we see the stress in these verses on all things? For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Far from us needing other things as well as Christ. Instead, all these things show us that he is all we need. Because we were created by him, created through him, and for him. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. He is supreme. Nothing else. No one else. Sisters and brothers, I wonder if we've seen this. Or have we maybe lost sight of it? Has your Jesus become too small in your own thinking? Has he become a mini-Jesus? Have you seen him in all his wonderfulness? Christ is enough because he's supreme over creation. Christ is enough because he's victorious. 25 years ago, when Rosie and I were, were dewy-eyed newlyweds, some friends came to stay. They'd been, they'd been dating for several years, but no sign of an engagement. I am going to call them Lee and Louise. It's not their actual names, but hey, they might at some point watch the live stream. They came to stay with us, in separate rooms, of course, and I took it on myself to speak to Lee about whether he was doing the right thing by Louise. I mean, Wasn't it time to pop the question? Well, Lee certainly wasn't one for rushing decisions. He wasn't quite sure. So I asked him, can you imagine life without Louise? No, he said, he couldn't possibly imagine life without her. Well, I said, isn't that your answer? Now, I don't want to take all the credit for their engagement and subsequent 24 years of marriage, Just most of the credit will be fine. Now, it's an imperfect illustration, but Lee needed to commit his future to Louise because he couldn't imagine life without her. And we need to commit our futures to Christ because in a far deeper and more profound sense, truly, life without him would be impossible. Verse 18, he is the head of of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. There's a deliberate echo here of verse 15. The son is the firstborn of all creation and the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. That is saying Jesus is supreme over death. The grave, the place of the dead, could not hold him as he rose victorious over death. The firstborn, the first of many. If you're feeling unsure or scared about a journey that you're about to make, it's a huge comfort to know that someone else has been uh, on that journey and made it safely. Well, how much more in the face of the death that awaits us all? How much more comforting to know that the Lord Jesus died and rose again? gives us confidence that if we are in him, when we die, we will rise again. 
He is the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. That is, that in everything he might have the first place. And why should Jesus have the first place? Not just because he conquered death, although that would be reason enough, but also because of what he's done. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. The false teachers who were around, who were around in Colossae were saying that the Christians needed more than Christ, that there were rules that they need to follow, religious observances they needed to, to, to go through. But how can you need more than the one who is preeminent, who is supreme, who has the first place, who is victorious? How can you need more than him? If, you were, if you're at school now, or you were a Christian when you were at school, or, or new Christians then, are Christians at school generally regarded as the cool kids or the losers? Well, with a few honourable exceptions, among whom I do not count myself, let's be honest, we are regarded as the losers, aren't we? We certainly were when I was a Christian at school. And so, because that's how everyone regards us, it's easy for us to get in our heads that we are the losers. But we belong to the one whom God has given first place over everything. We may be losers in life. But Jesus Christ is eternally and wonderfully victorious. And his victory he shares with us. He has the first place. He's supreme. He's, he's victorious. So to move from trusting in him, it would be madness. Christ is enough because he's supreme over creation. Christ is enough because he's victorious. Christ is enough because he reconciles. Paul has spoken about Jesus' great work of making peace by, his, by the blood of his cross. And then he applies that to the Colossians in verse 21. And you, he says, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Verse 21 describes the Colossians before they came to trust in Christ. And it describes them as God's enemies, alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. If you'd been asked before this morning what the problem was between sinful human beings and God, I suspect you would have said that the problem was sin. You'd be absolutely right. If your questioner had been a bit more persistent and asked what you meant by sin, how would you have responded would it, I wonder, have been talking about things that human beings do wrong? After all, the end of verse 21 talks about doing evil deeds. But I wonder if we can see here that the primary issue is relational. Why do human beings do evil deeds? Because, first half of verse 21, of being alienated from God and hostile in mind towards him. If you came to faith in Jesus as a child, 
and perhaps can't really remember a time when you didn't trust in him. I think this is a bit harder to grasp. But but the, the big issue for someone who doesn't trust Christ is that he or she is alienated from God, out of relationship with him. And that isn't a, a kind of morally neutral state. No, that person is hostile in mind. And it's from, from that state of being, uh, being alienated and hostile that the evil deeds flow. If you came to trust in Christ when you were an adult or as a teenager, you might be able to relate to this in your own experience. To look back, you were alienated from God and hostile to him. Which is why the reconciliation that Jesus has won by his death is so wonderful. Verse 22, he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Can we see how extraordinary this is? That we who once were alienated and hostile are reconciled to God being brought into loving relationship with him. And we are presented holy and blameless before God. We saw in last week's passage in verse 14 that in Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, but we have more than just forgiveness. If we regard sin as a debt, a negative, just forgiveness would make us morally neutral. Kind of not things counting against us, but but nothing counting for us either. But Jesus' death does far, far more for us than that. It makes us holy and blameless in God's sight. When Jesus died, when he took on himself our sin, he gives to us his own perfect record of righteousness. How can guilty human beings like you and me be holy and blameless in God's sight? Because we have the righteousness of Jesus, God's perfectly holy son. And he presents us to God as holy and blameless. And he alone can do that. No system of of rules or religious observances can possibly make us holy and blameless. Only Jesus can do that by his death. Only Jesus. It's been distressing this week, we, we prayed earlier to see the floods in the Libyan port city of Derna. Low-lying ground submerged in water. Now, some people have been rescued and taken from that low-lying flooded ground and taken to higher ground, away from the floodwaters. Now, for those who were rescued, what part did they play in their rescue? Well, none at all. The point of a rescue is that you need someone else to help you. What do the former residents of Derna who have been rescued need to do now? Well, they need to stay on the higher ground, the place of safety. Not to go back to where the floodwaters could sweep them away. Not until those floodwaters have passed. We play no part in our rescue. Christ has done it all by his death. He has made us holy and blameless before him and now we need to stay in that place of safety verse 23 if indeed you continue in the faith stable 
and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Brothers and sisters, we must not move from the hope of the gospel. The only place of salvation is the death of our Lord Jesus. There's no other way that we can stand holy and blameless and above reproach before God. It is only through Christ. So don't move from him. Don't move from trusting him. But actually, if we've grasped this passage and what it says, we will be saying, why would I move? That's not to minimise the risks of doing so, not to play down the temptations that come our way, but Christ is wonderful. Why would we move? If you're here exploring the Christian faith, I wonder if you can begin to see this. Begin to see how truly extraordinary the Lord Jesus Christ is. To trust him may seem like a big step. And it is. But it is the most sensible thing you can possibly do. Because there's no one else and nothing else like him. But if your trust is already in Jesus, I wonder if you've lost sight of how wonderful he is. Recent months have been difficult and challenging ones for us as a church family. You probably don't need me to tell you that. Some of us are facing real challenges in our lives, real difficulties in your family, with your health, with your work, in friendships, with financial pressures. Our sisters and brothers, Christ hasn't changed. He was enough this time last year. He is still enough today. He will always be enough. That will never change. Christ will always be enough. Christ is enough because he's supreme over creation, because he's victorious, because he alone reconciles. So don't move from him. Let me pray for us. Lord, we find it easy to sing, but much harder sometimes truly to believe and to feel, particularly in our darkest hours. Lord Jesus, we can only begin to glimpse how truly wonderful you are. But fill us, please, with a knowledge of this. May we just be delighted by you. For those of us who aren't yet yours, draw us to yourself, we pray. And for those of us who are yours, may we never move from this hope of the gospel. And we ask it in your name. Amen.